Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess that we are weak and we are feeble. And we need you to teach us this morning. We need you to open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in this portion of your scripture. So would you do that this morning for us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and so publicly humiliate yourself. But do you struggle to hit the snooze button too many times in the morning? I will raise my hand and hang my head in shame. Because I am that guy. I was especially that guy in college. I would hit the snooze alarm eight or nine times. And you know, it goes off every like nine minutes. So that's like, what, 81 minutes that I'm hitting the snooze alarm. And, and, and I would roll out of bed because I hated to wake up. I hated to get out from under the warm comfort of my, sheet, of my sheets and my comforter. And then I got married. And you can see how this was a great blessing in my marriage. My wife loved that the alarm would go off and I would just hit snooze multiple times. Of course she didn't. She would hit me or she would push me out of bed. There are multiple times that I have fallen out of bed because I have been shoved. But I needed to wake up. In order to function properly, I needed to wake up. Now, I like to think that I've grown over the years, but in reality, I still hit snooze two or three times. It's no longer eight or nine. But time is important. We know that we have to get Maddie Grace up at 6.15 for her to get out the door by 7.20 to get to carpool so she can go to school. We know that we have to get our younger children up, Jack and Emma, at seven o'clock so they can eat breakfast with Maddie Grace so that they don't freak out. We can walk the dog between 7.30 and 7.50, but we have to be home by 7.50 or we're not gonna be ready for them to go to preschool. Time is important. To function appropriately, we have to understand what time it is. And this is true for your life at home, getting your kids ready in the morning. It's true for your life at work, those meetings, those appointments that you have to be at. It's also true for your life as a Christian. To function properly as a Christian, you have to understand what time it is. Listen to the words of Paul again. He says, besides this, you know the time. You can also translate that to say, and do this, knowing the time. Paul says that we are to do all the things that he has laid out in chapters 12 and 13, knowing the time that the hour has come for you to wake 
from sleep. But sometimes when we think about the Christian life and all, that the, all of the things that are heaped up in chapters 12 and 13, we're not usually thinking, yes, I get to wake up and do that. Often it's more like, wake up and I have to do that we just grow weary because what Paul has laid out for us here in chapters 12 and 13 is what it means to be a living sacrifice it feels like a tall order it feels like an insurmountable task he tells us that we're to use the uh, the gifts that God has given us to bless the church he tells us that we're to love one another with a brotherly affection and serve one another. It tells us that we're to then go into blessing our enemies and not cursing them, but we're to overcome evil with good. That's an incredible task. Then he also tells us that we're to subject ourselves to the governing authorities, even the ones that we disagree with, because they're God's servants for our good. And then he says we're to fulfill the law of God by loving our neighbor as ourselves. When we look at all that's entailed with offering ourselves as living sacrifices, often we just think, can I hit the snooze one more time? Do I really have to love that person? Do I really have to bless that enemy? Do I really have to subject myself to that president? I didn't vote for him. Do we really have to love one another the way Jesus says we have to love one another? We just grow weary. So what's the answer to that weariness? Why is it that you are to wake up and offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God? Paul says in verse 11, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Friends, you wake up and you engage in that living sacrifice because the day of Jesus has dawned. The day has dawned. Paul uses the language of night and day to refer to different spheres. The night, it's the sphere of this present age. The sphere governed and ruled by sin and Satan and death. And then the day is the sphere of God. It's the age to come. It's ruled by God through his son, Jesus. And in the New Testament, what we see, and especially here in Romans 13, is that because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, these two spheres overlap. And so we live in a sort of perpetual sunrise. If you've ever been on the beach during the sunrise, you know what that's like. The night is being chased away because the sun has crested over the horizon and we live in that moment, a perpetual sunrise. The day has dawned. But how then are we to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in light of the dawning day of Jesus. We see first here that you're to resist the darkness. Let's take a look at, at verse 12. 
He says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then, or therefore, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. See, the logic is this. The day has come, the light is shining, Jesus has shown up on the scene, so don't participate in the activities that belong to the night. You don't belong to the night, you've placed your faith in Jesus, so don't live as those who belong to the darkness. And then he goes on to describe those works of darkness in verse 13. He says that they are orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. Now you can see why these things belong to the night. Drunken parties leading to debauchery, leading to brawls. This was the characteristic of the nightlife of the Roman Empire. This isn't an exhaustive list, though. It's not meant to give you all the possible options of, what the, of, of how the darkness is manifested, of how sin reveals its ugly head, but it's more exemplative. It's meant to give you a few examples of how darkness was revealed in the Roman Empire. So these are types of activities that characterize dark, darkness, that occupy this present evil age. But what's really important for us to note, what's really important for us to recognize is that the darkness isn't just outside. It's not just in our culture. It's not just in pagan America or pagan Rome. It's in each one of us. Paul says at the end of verse 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. See, not only are you to resist darkness outside, but because the day has dawned, you are to resist the darkness within. You're not to give into it, to participate in its desires, because as Paul says in chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, brothers and sisters, we've, those fleshly desires, those sins have been crucified with Jesus. And you no longer have to walk in them because by virtue of your union with Jesus, you are dead to them. I heard a friend say once that when he leads the Lord's Supper, he reminds the people that we are participating in the death of Jesus, that we are proclaiming the death of Jesus, but we're also proclaiming another death. We are proclaiming our own death because we participate in that death. And friends, you are dead. You are dead to sin and you are alive to God. But as we saw in chapter 7, the darkness remains very much still alive. Though you are dead to it, it is still very much active and enticing. That's the tension of the Christian life. It's kind of like the enchanted Turkish delight from the Chronicles of Narnia. I've been reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Maddie Grace for school. And you can see this much better in, uh, when you read it than you can in the, in the movie. But it says that when Edmund first encountered the, the witch, on her sled, she gave him Turkish delight as a snack. But it says that it was enchanted Turkish delight and that anyone who had once tasted it 
would want more and more of it and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating till they killed themselves. So the witch released him to go back to his family, hoping that he would bring them back. Eventually, he did return to Narnia, but he heard of all the bad things that the witch had done, all the evil schemes, but though he was free from her, he didn't have to go back to her. The only thing he could think about was returning to her for, for more Turkish delight. And friends, we do this over and over, over and over in our lives, returning to our old patterns, to those things that have been crucified, those things that have been crucified with Christ, but they continue to entice us. And so I just simply ask you, what's the darkness for you? What patterns of anger or rage are you engaged in? What patterns of lust or greed are you trapped in? In what ways do you embrace cynicism or comparison or contempt? Jesus says to you this morning that because he was crucified, those things are crucified along with him. And so you resist the works of darkness for the day has dawned in Jesus. And then secondly, you embrace the light. Paul says in verse 12 that we not only cast off the works of darkness, but we also put on the armor of light. Now this armor are instruments or weapons that God in his grace has provided to bolster the Christian life, to strengthen you, to defend you from the attacks of the darkness, of, of your sin and your flesh and the evil one. Often we think of Ephesians 6 and the full armor of God because we don't fight a conventional war. We fight a spiritual war. And so we need spiritual tools, spiritual weapons to fight this spiritual war. We can also think of the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer as instruments by which we sustain a life with God and embrace the light. This armor is to help us to walk properly in the daytime, he says in verse 13. This is another way of just saying what John has said in 1 John. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We conduct ourselves in the light in a Christianly way because the day has dawned in Jesus. The light is shining, so live in the light. But unfortunately, it's rather easy for us to divorce these instruments from their true source. It's easy to try, to try to work good things in this world, to participate in good things and do righteous things, but then divorce it from Christ with no reference to him. It's really easy even to read the scriptures, to study them, even to memorize them, but not be affected by them because we're not looking to the source. And that's why Paul says in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by embracing Jesus that we, that we actually embrace the true light. Jesus is the light. He is the one who shines into the world and chases away the darkness. The darkness can't overcome his light. To put on Jesus, then, is to embrace him. 
to look to him by faith, to embrace the values and the virtues of his life and to embrace all that belongs to him that he graciously puts on offer to you and so be conformed to his image. As a boy, I wanted desperately to be like my father. I wanted to walk like him. I wanted to talk like him. I wanted to look like him. And thankfully, he had a great beard, and so I have, the pupil has actually outdone the teacher in that regard. But I would spend so much time with my father because I wanted to be like him. I would sit in the deer stand with him, all decked out in our camouflage, and I'd just sit there, just being with him, just waiting for something to come along. Usually I would, uh, I would make noise and we would never shoot a deer because I was terrible at it. But he loved NASCAR, so we would sit and watch NASCAR and if you're familiar with NASCAR, Mark Martin was our uh, favorite race car driver. He was the jam. I would sit and watch him work on his truck. And so I learned from him. I'd go to Home Depot and I'd, just because I, I wanted to ride with him and I wanted to see what he was gonna buy and what he was gonna fix, I would, I would, I would try to work on the house with him with my tiny little hammer and not really do a whole lot, but over time, the more I embraced my father, the more I became like him. His values became my values. His virtues became my virtues. And yes, his vices became my vices. And I'd suggest that a similar dynamic is, is at work in the Christian. That as we recognize that the day has dawned in Jesus, that it's time for us to wake up we embrace the light and are shaped by the values and virtues of Jesus. And over time, we learn to love the things that he loves, to act the way he acts, to pursue the things he pursues, not because we're trying to earn anything from him, but because we've already been given everything we need in him. So we embrace the light. To embrace the light is, as one commentator put it, not only to become what you are, but to become what you one day will be, conformed to the image of Christ. In his autobiographical book, Confessions, Augustine reflects on his conversion to Christianity. His life was full of darkness. He ran headlong into the lusts of his flesh, but through many series of events, God was drawing Augustine to himself. And one night, he was in a garden reflecting on his life. And he says of that night, when deep reflection had drawn up out of the secret depths of my soul, all my misery, and it had heaped it up before the sight of my eyes, there arose a mighty storm, accompanied by a mighty rain of tears. And so he wept. He wept bitterly underneath a fig tree for a while, lamenting his sin and all the ways that he had plunged into darkness. But as he was weeping, he heard the voice of a small child. And this child called out, take up, read, take up, read. And he immediately ceased crying 
he rushed over to the bench that he had been sitting on where he left his Bible. And these are his words. I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Brothers and sisters, like Augustine, and like all those saints who have gone before us, when you look to Jesus, to the true light of the world, when you embrace him, there is infused into your heart something like the light of full certainty. Now that doesn't mean that you don't continue to struggle. It doesn't mean that you don't continue to battle those besetting sins. That's why he's telling us to resist them, to cast them off. But it's in those moments especially when you must return, when you must remember that the sun has crested over the horizon, that the day of Jesus has dawned and the rightful king sits on his throne. And while the morning star rises in your hearts, it will one day rise fully into the sky. And that last day, the sure hope of our salvation is when the kingdom will come to earth and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So friends, resist darkness. Embrace the light and the sure and certain hope that since the day has dawned in Jesus, salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you sent your son into the world to do battle with the evil one, to defeat sin and death on our behalf. He came into the night and he defeated it, rising from the grave trampling down death. Would you give us faith to believe that? Would you make us, your children at Christ Church, those who look to that day, those who would, would understand what time it is, would we resist darkness, the darkness outside of us, but also the darkness within us? Would we also be those who Embrace Jesus as the true light of the world. And so conform our lives to his. Would you transform us by the renewing of our minds and make us more and more like your son, Jesus. So Father, we come to you, casting all of our burdens and our anxieties on you, knowing that you are the one who hears, you are the one who answers prayers. So let's join our hearts together in silent prayer for the following concerns. Let's pray for God's saving power to be known among the nations, especially praying for our mission partners, Daniel and Abby Aguilas, working with Surge in Lima, Peru. 
Ask the Lord to continue to establish Daniel's network of churches and to increase his influence among pastors and churches in Lima. Let's pray for the advance of the gospel in our city, praying for our local ministry partner, Ray Clotaire, pastor of Elohim Evangelical Church. Ask the Lord to strengthen Ray and to provide him with all the necessary resources to minister to the Haitian population on Jacksonville's west side. And let's pray for all in authority, especially for our governor, Ron DeSantis. Pray that he will promote justice, restrain evil, and uphold integrity and truth in our state. Let's pray for those who grieve the sick and all who are suffering in our community this morning, asking God to heal and bring comfort. Let's remember Barb Day, Louis Fosnick, Sue Forsyth, Elizabeth Garnett, Gar Garganis, Hector and Vielna Harima, Wayne Noble, Sandy Reynolds, and Jewel Smith. And finally, let's pray for all the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to work within their hearts that they might never remember a day apart from Christ. We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.